0: Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Massick. Please get in the car, Jason. Tell me, Bill, what's the charge? Possession of concealed weapons and disturbing the peace? Disturbing the peace?
1: I got thrown out a window. What's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car, huh? Jaywalking? This is bullshit!
0: And that's right, listeners. We are kicking off season three by discussing, with spoilers of plenty, the 1984 blockbuster Beverly Hills Cop, starring Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, and Ronnie Cox. Directed by Martin Brest, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 45 minutes. Beverly Hills Cop was nominated for one Oscar, Best Writing Screenplay, written directly for the screen. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Stick it away, Jason. Eddie Murphy's hilarious portrayal of Detective Axel Foley
1: has propelled Beverly Hills Cop into the ranks of the top ten biggest box office hits in history. Foley's a brash, street-smart Detroit detective who follows the trail of a friend's murderer to the posh surroundings of Beverly Hills. And before Axel gets his man, he gets up to his neck in an international network of smugglers and drug peddlers. It's a fast-paced adventure that proves the difference between a really good comedy and a great comedy is Eddie Murphy. He's been chased, thrown through a window, and arrested. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop on vacation in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills
0: Cop. Yes, Jason, it is season three, and we're kicking things off with Beverly Hills Cop, one of the biggest blockbusters of the 80s. Jason, what are your earliest memories of this movie? That's right. It's unbelievable, incredible, wonderful, stupendous. It is
1: season three. What a way to get started. Beverly Hills Cop, man, I cannot wait to get into this one. I've been looking forward to it since we put it on the slate because it's great and it's fun. You know what? When I think back on this awesome movie, besides, of course, seeing Eddie Murphy's face, I hear the soundtrack in my head, man. It just goes with it. It's the Pointer Sisters with Neutron Dance, or it's the Axel F theme by Harold Faltemeyer, or it's the Heat Is On by Glenn Fry, which you'll appreciate, Bill Bant, the fact that we had dance routines that would go along with the Heat Is On that we did at the Kim Kala Dance Studio. That's right. Yeah, yeah. When I was just a young tyke, dancing to the Heat Is On. then you may hear me complain from time to time now, about how film scores are not as thematic as they used to be, and how I miss that. There are people today that just might not realize or remember that an instrumental theme like Axel F would actually get radio play and become a hit, and how huge the music tie-ins were for the musical artists featured on the film soundtrack as well. Now, this is just like an early memory. Me thinking back is like an artist like the Pointer Sisters would have a song featured in the film and thus the soundtrack and then release a music video which featured clips and or stars from the film. I implore you, just go to YouTube and watch the music video for Neutron Dance. It's fantastic. And it was all about the cross promotion. we were going out to see these movies and we were going to the record store to buy the music because we'd hear it in the movie. It was just all big business. And that's an early memory of mine just because the soundtrack was awesome. And I'm positive I saw this in the theater and had a blast. I recall, of course, Eddie's overwhelming humor, charm, and charisma. The supporting cast was so great. I loved Rosewood and Taggart as a kid. I remember thinking Judge Reinhold was hilarious. I remember Ronnie Cox as Lieutenant Bogomil being a hard ass. And loving his turn at the end when he actually covers for Axel and the guys. I remember having an immediate crush on Lisa Eilbacher as Jenny Summers and always wondering why her and Axel never got together. I always remember Bronson Pinchot's ridiculous accent. His Serge. Jonathan Banks. Underrated man. Great character actor. He's a henchman in this. And Victor, the bad guy with the mole in his forehead. I always remember that. That's like an early memory of mine. Oh, the yeah. bad guy with the mole on his forehead. This movie makes me think of hiding things in coffee grounds. That's always... <laughs> right. This was my introduction, really, to the screaming police chief trope in buddy cop movies. And here's an early memory, Bill Ban. I was really bothered as a kid when I saw this because I was 11 years old. And when I saw Axel's buddy Mikey get killed in the beginning of the movie, that was a bummer for me. And it was a surprise. And I was like, what? You can't kill this guy right off the bat. I don't That just bothered me as a kid. I remember that. Now, I've seen this movie several times since, of course, it's a serious part of what makes the 80s. The 80s is right up there with Back to the Future, E.T. and Indiana Jones. Also, you know, here's an early memory. This movie made me want to go to Beverly Hills as a kid. It seemed so attractive back then. Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, it really made it seem like a fantasy. It was just beautiful women, fancy cars, fancy hotels, palm trees, and sunshine everywhere all the time. I wanted to go because of this movie. Lastly, this was my first introduction to Eddie Murphy. I'm 11 years old when this comes out. I'm not familiar with Eddie's work on SNL. I haven't seen 48 Hours of Trading Places. This was it for me, and it didn't get much better. This guy was such a clear and obvious star. I couldn't keep my eyes off him. There's the obvious comedy, quick wit, timing, and improvisational characters, but this guy could transition as an actor from the comedy to the drama to the action hero so easily. He was the whole package. I immediately wanted to know more about him and go see anything he was in after this. The guy just made me laugh as a kid. And you put him in this type of movie that allows him to cook and show off all of his capabilities as a performer. It's just gold. It was one of those really well-balanced films that just hit all the right notes. It's a classic. Still is. It's just fun to watch. You can't watch this and not feel good. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the all-time great quotes, which is not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe. I'm not going to try to do the, the impersonation I'm going to end it right there. What are your early memories of this incredible movie, Bill Bant?
0: Yeah, so it was uh, December of 1984. Yeah, it was uh, 11. And it was right before Christmas. And my mom said, hey, I'm going to take go see a movie. And we went and saw Beverly Hills Cop. And this was my first R-rated movie in the theater. I don't know why she wanted to go see this. I had seen bits and pieces of Trading Places. And I know through friends who Eddie Murphy was, because I wasn't allowed to stay up late enough to watch Saturday Night Live. So I knew the Mr. Robinson skit, but I'd never really seen it. I remember before we went to the movie, my mom took me to the store and she said, go buy some candy. What? She's like, yeah, just bring it to the theater. We'll eat it. Wait, we're going to sneak candy into the theater? She's like, yeah. So I bought a bag of Starburst. I remember I had a bag of Starburst. And we get in the theater, and I open the bag, and I start eating. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with the trash? She's like, just throw it on the floor. I'm like, but they're going to know that I brought in Starburst. She's like, what are they going to do to us? We'll be long gone. I think this is the first time I realized my mom's not a mom. She's like a person. And that was kind of cool. And then I remember the opening scene of the movie when they're doing the cigarette deal. And they're just dropping F-bombs and curses left and right. And I heard my mom just say, man, they're certainly cursing a lot in this movie. And I remember thinking, oh, crap. She's going to make us leave because of all the cursing. And then when it got to the point with Inspector Todd, and he's chewing out Eddie, but my mom's laughing like crazy. She thinks it's hysterical. I'm like, super. We're, we're safe again. But then one of the most well, embarrassing parts of the movie is when they go to the strip club, and Axel's talking about your dick getting hard. <laughs> oh, my God. I sank so low into the chair. It was unbelievable. Because first, you're excited. Like, oh, man, there's strip on the scene. There's boobs. And then he does that oh, whole yeah. speech, and I was shrinking. I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to leave now. But no, that didn't happen. We saw the rest of the movie, and then we went out, and she's like, oh, let's go get some pizza. And I remember we went across the street to this pizza place, and you know, she ordered some pizza. And they had in the pizza place an old arcade machine of Jungle King, and that was before it became Jungle Hunt. I just remember that night like it was yesterday, going to see that with my mom. And I'll never know why she wanted to go see it, but I can't thank her enough for it. Is certainly one of my favorite movies of the 80s. And yeah, I remember sitting in the theater, watching the movie in my Starburst.
1: Ah, That's great stuff. Great story, man. Thanks for sharing. And it's funny you mentioned that it being your first R-rated film. It may have been the same for me. However, when I did the opening quote with you, there's an F-bomb in the quote, and I Immediately was thinking to myself, yeah, let's get ready to drop some F-bombs during this podcast. I don't know if there'll be that many throughout, so don't worry, listeners, if you're a little bit averse to the vulgarity. But there is a ton of vulgarity. There's a lot of F-bombs oh, in yeah. this movie. That was very apparent. Mm-hmm. I, I just hadn't remembered that upon revisiting this today. Doesn't bother me, of course. Now, now I try to think back as a child or a young man and... uh How it affected me then, because, yeah, lots of swearing. Yes. Good stuff, man. Are we going to move into some of our initial thoughts, or did you want to say something else? No,
0: go ahead. Initial thoughts. Go for it. All right. We're going to
1: talk about this movie and how it affected us today. So I don't know if you knew this, but, yeah, Eddie Murphy's in this movie. So where was he at when this movie came out? Well, uh, we know he was Reggie Hammond in 48 Hours in 1982, and that film is often credited as the one that kicked off or sparked the buddy cop genre. He's Billy Ray Valentine in Trading Places, 1983. I, I didn't know this, man. Did you know that he had a role in the film Best Defense, starring Dudley Moore Oh yeah, in 1984? I was not aware of this movie, Bill Bant,
0: Have you seen it? I remember very little about it, but I think the thing was he's only in it for maybe like 10 minutes. It's really a Dudley Moore vehicle, but because Eddie took off... They promoted it more, that it was an Eddie Murphy movie, but it got killed. It was panned by critics. It bombed big time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he plays the part of Lieutenant T.M. Landry in the film. I'd never heard of it until I was doing this research. But then comes Beverly Hills Cop. And rounding out the 80s snapshot, we've got the golden child Beverly Hills Cop 2 coming to America and finally Harlem Nights in 1989. Pretty decent uh, 80s for Eddie Murphy. Eddie is known as one of our obviously uh, biggest comedians and movie stars of the 80s and 90s, starring a huge blockbuster star uh, such as The Nutty Professor and voicing uh, the donkey in the Shrek films. And then he was nominated for Best Supporting Oscar for Dreamgirls in 2006. And now he's also the winner of the Cecil B. DeMille Award, which is a Golden Globe Award for making outstanding contributions to the world of entertainment. A little fun trivia. You know, he was cast by Saturday Night Live and NBC in 1980 when he was 19 years old. Crazy. It's a somewhat common fact, but something I always forget. He was only 19. Eddie Murphy's got 10 children. Didn't know that. Eddie Murphy's the only cast member of Saturday Night Live to host while still being a cast member. And at the height of his popularity in the mid-1980s, He began a music career, spawning the popular song Party All the Time. Party all the time, party all the time, which he recorded with Rick James. Ah, Party All the Time. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. And then moving on to another main player in this, going to mention Martin Brest, our director. I didn't realize this. Marty, Marty Brest has only nine directing credits on IMDb. His other big 80s movie was Midnight Run from 1988, which is just an all-timer, one of my all-time favorites. Then he would go on to do Scent of a Woman in 1992, which got Pacino his Lifetime Achievement Oscar. (laughs) Little tongue-in-cheek for you. No, he won it for Best Actor, but we all know it was a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, but we love Pacino. Hey, he also directed Meet Joe Black and then Agili, which were not well-received. But still, I'll take Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. Any day, Did you know that Martin Brest was the original director of War Games in 1983, a film we did on this very podcast, but he was replaced by John Badham, and several of Brest's scenes still remain in the film. Here's some initial thoughts. My biggest takeaway that I anticipated and confirmed upon this revisit of Beverly Hills Cop was Eddie Murphy's understated and very natural performance. Yes, I said understated. I know it's weird, but... Man, Eddie Murphy just blows up after this movie and goes on to do so many great things, but he is just so natural and really does have some understated moments in this film. He obviously has this youthful look, exuberance, charm, etc. However, for example, the opening of the film with the relationship, what I call actually a love scene between he and Mike, his best friend Mikey. There are real genuine moments, and the same goes for when he meets up with Jenny in Beverly Hills. Some real honest moments within his performance that really endear you to both he and the character. I'm not saying that he doesn't have any of these moments in any other performances at all, but I do miss the emphasis on them. They just really stand out to me in this particular performance. So here's an initial thought. Jenny Summers, played by Lisa Eilbacher, she's still hot in this movie. I still want her and Eddie to hook up. I always wanted them to get together. Anyway, this movie is smooth. It's just written really well. I'm watching the scenes with my writer's hat on and thinking about character introduction and character establishment and relationship establishment, and it's just flowing so naturally in this movie. From the scene with Axel and Mikey to the scene when Axel arrives in Beverly Hills and goes to see his old friend Jenny Summers at the art gallery to when Axel is first brought to the police department in Beverly Hills and is introduced to Rosewood and Taggart and Lieutenant Bogomil, It all works so well, and it's fun, and it's smart. Eddie has his comedic improvisational bits in between, but they don't feel forced. You and I, Bill, have talked about this on other podcasts, how with comedians they'll force uh, some of their stand-up comedy shtick into the script, And the segues in and out of those bits don't work as well. And it feels forced. It's obviously forced. Not here. Transitions are smooth. Again, I'm emphasizing smooth. And you know what? There really isn't actually any action set piece outside of the truck chase at the opening of the film and then almost until almost an hour later during the strip club scene. We're just watching a detective story with this charismatic character at the center, who goes about his investigation within the fish-out-of-water context and does his thing in a creative, inventive manner, and that's enough. You just want to see who he meets and what he does next and what he discovers. This is what I thought of actually watching it. It's not too dissimilar to Fletch. Obviously, Chevy Chase and Eddie Murphy are two different actors, although both on SNL, but equally fun to watch discover clues and put them together and all to the great synth soundtrack music of Harold Faltermeyer. All the pieces fit. So going back to Eddie Murphy's performance in this, this is just another initial thought. He has wonderful moments that are simply looks either before or in the middle or after his improvisational bits, i.e. when he's checking into the Beverly Palm Hotel or trying to get into the Harrow Club, sometimes it's a deadpan stare like when he's finding out how much the hotel rate is, or sometimes it's a pause before getting into the character, as if he realizes in a quick moment or second that he's got to switch channels and uh, become Victor's lover, Ramon, or something like that. It's a pause before moving on, and it adds just that extra element. It's a look that only takes a second but makes his bits so much more funny. Lastly, my last initial thought, if there's a standout upon this revisit, Even though it was a standout when I first saw it, it's still Judge Reinhold. It's because he's just plain funny. He's a great, slightly dim-witted, simpleton goof, yet a pretty capable cop when he needs to be. He's just a really fun character. Uh, What are your initial thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop?
0: Funny, because you kind of mentioned it in your earliest memories, uh, the soundtrack. How much I loved that soundtrack. First bought that soundtrack on record, then bought it on cassette, bought it on CD. Record's long gone. I still have the cassette. But Glenn Fry, Pointer Sisters, Patti LaBelle, Danny Elfman, and, of course, Axel F. from Harold faltermeyer Just classic. The music was just great. It just worked so well. And it was, it was such a nice element to the movie. Something was going to happen with Eddie any time that... Dun, 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 and it's so recognizable. I'm sure even if you played it for someone today, they would know what movie that's from, even if they haven't seen the movie. It's such a recognizable piece of synth music. I was just amazed what Eddie Murphy really does for that movie. It's really his first solo starring film, 48 Hours Trading Places. He had Nick Nolte, he had Dan Aykroyd. He's carrying this movie now on his back. He's in almost every frame of this movie. And he improvised a lot in this movie too, and it works. He carries this movie from beginning to end. There's only maybe two times where he's kind of, I'll just say, shown up a little bit. One is by Inspector Todd. When he comes on and chews him out, he has such a presence. And I believe that's probably the only person that could keep Axel Foley in his place. And then, of course, uh, Bronson Prince's turn as Surge, which was a scene stiller and basically launched his career. The movie's still funny. I think it works great living here in California. I've maybe been to Beverly Hills a handful of times, and it's maybe 20 minutes away. I'd rather just watch it on Beverly Hills Cop than actually go out there myself. I would have to say... This is probably my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. I know people might say coming to America, and that's fine. Eddie Murphy was the 80s. He was one of the biggest things in the 80s. It was amazing. Just about everything he touched turned to gold, except for best defense. It's just a fun movie. Fish out of water story that we've gone over again and again and again. It was kind of cool to see the compare contrast between Detroit and Beverly Hills. And yeah, I think that's about all I got for initial thoughts.
1: That was all good stuff, man, and it just, yeah, made me think about how much I love this film as well. Would I say it's my favorite Eddie Murphy movie? I could say that easily. After revisiting it today, I enjoyed it so much. I really did. I was laughing out loud at several moments. Such a credit to everybody in the movie, the writing, Daniel Petrie Jr., Eddie Murphy shines, and again, I'll just stress the fact that he's has these really natural moments, and that's, I hope, We get to see again with Eddie Murphy in some of his films. And I will be completely transparent here. There are some of his most recent films I have not seen. Maybe it's just because he was young. There's that raw, natural, again, youthful exuberance that comes through. But he comes down and his face is so relaxed in in some dramatic moments in this movie. And then he just comes alive in other moments. And he covers all the bases as an actor in this movie. So I'm glad you brought up the soundtrack and really stressed that as well because, man, funny enough, I adore everything synth when it comes to the 80s, any synth music. So I'm a big Harold Faltermeyer fan, everything from Top Gun to this to Fletch. Like, I love The Running Man, which I know you don't, but I love it. However, today, after watching the movie, you know what stuck in my head was Patty LaBelle's Stir It Up because I adore the sequence when we see Murphy – taking vacation and telling inspector Todd that he's taking this vacation. And then it cuts to all of a sudden palm trees and he's in Beverly Hills and you, that music is going and it comes and goes throughout his kind of initial exploration of getting settled into Beverly Hills and beginning his investigation. Just love that song. And I was bopping my head to that song all day today. So, I mean, the score is fantastic. It's so eighties and so great and so nostalgic. I'm glad you stressed that in fact. Uh, I'm ready to move on if you are.
0: No, oh, yeah. Let's go on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Beverly Hills Cop? Is
1: that fucking Foley in here? <laughs> that's I mean, I love that you've said that your mom was cracking up when Inspector Todd makes his entrance because that's my first favorite moment. I'm going to keep it brief, but shout out to Gilbert R. Hill, Chief Inspector Todd, because he, to me, probably is the best screaming police chief of all cinema. Oh yeah. What an entrance. It's just freaking hilarious. And he just goes straight at Axel Foley, aka Eddie Murphy, and takes him down a notch, and it's great. What I love about it, however, is there's some nice little character establishing moments and or exposition here because amongst him chewing out Axel Foley, he does establish the fact that Axel is a good cop. We get the sense that Todd. Is a hard ass, yet he has some respect for Axel. So it's kind of nice. But man, it's just the way Gilbert R. Hill, the actor, as Inspector Todd, says the word fuck or yells at Jeffrey. Like, Jeffrey, stay out of None of your fucking business. Like he just really <laughs> nails it. My first favorite moment is Inspector Todd's introduction.
0: I love Inspector Todd. He is hilarious. He's hilarious in a good way because in actuality, he was a police officer, detective, so he plays the part perfectly. And you know right away he runs a tight ship in there, but everybody respects him. And the fact that Eddie, for the most part, and I, and I think this helps the character too, that he respects his tongue lashing from Todd and understands that he did wrong and he's not going to be cocky about it, but he does make the little line at the end, like, still got a little piece of ass there. And then, you know, don't fuck with me, fully. Oops, I kind of stepped over the line there. Yeah, Inspector Todd, he is definitely a highlight of the movie. I, w- I would like to see another scene with Inspector Todd, maybe at the end or something.
1: Totally agreed. And I love the fact that even though Inspector Todd does not appear throughout the rest of the film, his presence is ever looming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because well, he's not supposed to be investigating the murder of his best friend, Michael Tandino, but he's out there in Beverly Hills doing just that against Inspector Todd's direct orders and and he's supposed to be undercover regardless but he's not doing a great job and it keeps getting back to the beverly hills police department and they have to eventually report back to todd who's going to find out and it's just like oh man we don't we don't want todd to find out you don't want Axel get in trouble so it's like inspector todd is with him the whole way anyway what's your favorite moment or scene to start off with
0: fully we should have known it was you so it's the beginning actual sequence, the cigarette deal gone bad. Yeah. So great opening montage credit scene with the heat is on showing Detroit. We open up with Axel Eddie Murphy in the back of this truck with uh this gentleman and it's a truck full of cigarettes and it's a it's actually two truck bodies put together and it's full of all these cigarettes and Eddie's trying to uh, pawn off these cigarettes for $5,000 and the buyer is trying to stiff him and only give him $2,000 and Axel Eddie is not having any of it. And while this deal is supposedly going down, police patrol car shows up, interrupts the deal, and the gentleman takes off. And there's two of them, and one of them takes off in the truck with Eddie in the back, trying to outrun the police. And now we have Neutron Dance from the Pointer Sisters playing, and it's one of the craziest chase scenes ever because the guy behind the wheel has no regard for any property whatsoever he's just driving down streets smashing police cars smashing cars you have eddie in the back with all these cigarettes flying all over him and there's a great scene because i remember everyone laughing over this where the truck goes over these train track and in the back of the truck there's a like, it's almost like a chain net and Axel holding on to it and it hits the track so hard the back of the truck bumps up and Axel comes swinging out, slams into the truck, and then swings back in. And for an action sequence to kind of make you laugh, that's, that's something you don't normally see. And then eventually, the cops are able to stop the truck... The driver gets out of the car and gets away and then all the cops go running to the back of the truck because they know when someone's back there and they think they're going to arrest someone and unfortunately they find out it is Axel Foley. And just by the way, the officer says, oh, we should have known it was you. This isn't the first time Axel's pulled one of these kind of stunts. So he's certainly notorious for taking a little step too far in order to accomplish a goal or an arrest. I love that scene. It's just so fun. The music just works I mean, they must smash about 40 cars. It's not quite Blues Brothers-esque, but it's definitely right up there with the damage.
1: It's an incredible set piece. Great call, Bill Bant. Great way to start because from the get-go, Eddie Murphy is setting the tone here with his fast-talking, like wit and charm and just doing his thing. It's like you couldn't get a word in edgewise because he's just going a million miles an hour and he's playing the role. He's trying to do the deal and bust these buyers and trying to get the money that he feels he's owed because he's in character and he thinks he's owed five thousand dollars read my lips five thousand <laughs> dollars it's just fantastic and they're like well i don't have the five thousand dollars you can just take all these cigarettes and smoke them and he's like i don't smoke what is i don't smoke like i smoke king size kent <laughs> Yeah. and it's just fantastic and then the cops show up as you said That got to me thinking because this is why the chief is so upset and that you see this in so many other buddy cop or just cop movies when the chief is mainly upset because hero detective, of course, has to go outside the lines and causes so much destruction that either the city or the department has to pay for it. And you're just watching this guy drive this truck basically like a monster truck just demolishing all these cars that are parked on the side of the road. People are running out of the way as a taxi cab gets smashed. There's an actual explosion. I forgot about that. I didn't totally did expect that. He wraps a car into like a tele, or a light pole and the damn thing explodes. I'm like, whoa. And to see Eddie swinging around and that laugh out loud moment is so true because you see him swing around and hit the side of the back of the truck and you hear the, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. oh my God. That stunt guy probably got bruised up. But it looks like it's Eddie doing it. Anyway, great, great opening sequence. Yeah, I mean, what else can you say about it? It's just totally adrenaline pumping with the Neutron dance song going on in the background. I'm glad you shouted out the opening montage of the scenes of Detroit with the credits rolling. That was fascinating because you're like, oh, yeah, this is a pretty gritty town. Yeah. Then when, of course, it totally works when it's uh, juxtaposed against the beautiful, sunny Beverly Hills, only about like 20 to 25 minutes later. Great contrast.
0: So Mm -hmm. great scene, man. Yeah, they definitely had some good stunts. The bus doing the the 180. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was cool. And then just the fact that all that cigarettes for $5,000. I'm like, holy crap. Even then, I didn't feel like that was enough. Oh, yeah, right. It's basically two cargo holds of cigarettes. Oh, it's a ton. Yeah, that's a lot. I was like, no one would take the $2,000. No, no. But what a great way to start the movie! Yeah. Uh, so, what's your next scene or moment for *Fevered Hills*? Com.
1: So, my
0: first favorite scene, I'm calling Axel and Mikey. Yeah, I
1: love all this stuff with Mikey. I I did as a kid. I still do. It's just some great character establishment and relationship development, and it's not complicated, but it's smartly done. It's smartly written, and we have Axel who's coming home after a rough day on the job, as we've just described, after getting chewed out by Inspector Todd, his boss. And when he's walking up the stairwell of his complex, he sees that his apartment door is slightly ajar. This puts him on alert. He draws his gun, and he goes into his apartment. And when he turns a corner, he sees a guy helping himself to a meal at his modest kitchen table. Axel immediately recognized the guy that broke into his apartment, is his longtime friend, his old best friend, Michael Tandino. We learn that Michael had gotten out of jail six months earlier and spent some time out in L.A. and came back to Detroit to see Axel. And he shows Axel a paper bag and pulls out a couple of bound stacks of German bear bonds. Now, Axel assumes immediately that Michael stole them and doesn't even want to know the backstory. So the two friends just go to a local bar to get caught up over a game of pool. We get some more exposition. We find out that when Mikey was in L.A., he was hired as a security guard, a warehouse security guard for a uh, famous art studio, and that he was hired by Axel and his friend in common, Jenny Summers, a friend from back in the day, who is now the manager of that art studio. Anyway, moments later, Axel and Mikey are at the bar sharing war stories from their wild child days when they were basically young criminals and they stole a car together. And Mikey was sent to a state school as a result, but he never snitched on Axel. So during a heartfelt moment, uh, one of my favorite moments here, actually, Axel asks why Mikey never told him. And Mikey says, you don't know why? You really don't know? Because I love you, man. And it's just a great moment when he says it to Eddie Murphy. And that's the one of those natural moments Eddie has when he's really listening to the actor James Russo, who plays Mikey. And it's so genuine. Yeah, these guys are, are, they go back, man. And they're best friends and it's heartfelt. Anyway, they get back to the apartment and Mikey has definitely had his fill of drink. And before Axel can open the front door, he's accosted and knocked unconscious by an unknown assailant and another man. The two attackers are in suits and Mikey recognizes one of them who is the character of Zack, played by Jonathan Banks, who Mikey worked for back in LA. And Zack is not pleased that Mikey made off with the German bear bond so... Zack takes them back from Mikey, then tells Mikey never to show his face in L.A. again. It seems as though Zack is going to let Mikey off the hook. However, even after Mikey apologizes profusely, Zach punches him, knocks him to the ground, and shoots him twice in the back of the head. Zach and his partner, Casey, the other assailant, leave the dead Mikey on the hallway floor next to the unconscious Axel Foley. I love this whole scene because it's the inciting action which sends Axel to L.A., and we need to buy that he's motivated enough to risk everything to avenge his best friend's murder. The chemistry between Axel and Mikey is phenomenal, in my opinion. It's established quickly. We get the exposition information we need. It's not just a relationship scene. It's a love scene between two best friends. They have a real brotherly connection, and you feel it. Especially, like I said, when Mikey tells Eddie that, yeah, man, he loves him. He's his best friend, and he uh, would do anything for him. He'd take a bullet for him. The actors sell it completely. I buy these guys as best friends. You feel the loss when Mikey is killed. And like I said earlier, I remember it when I saw that Mikey gets shot. It was was a shock. It was a bummer. And credit to Jonathan Banks as the thug Zach because he is a thug in a suit. That's as plain as it gets. And he adds on to that murder. I mean, he is pouring salt on the wound because with a sly performance, He almost convinces the audience that he's going to let Mikey go before he actually shoots him. Makes it tougher to watch. I think it's a great scene. Gets the whole story going. And this becomes Axel's call to adventure, so to speak. So that's my first favorite scene.
0: Yeah, good call. Funny thing about the Mikey character is he's a bad guy who comes across as a good guy. I mean, everything you learn about Mikey in that eight-minute window, not a lot of good things, except he's very loyal to his friends. He took a fall for Axel and you believe that the, the two of them were friends for a really long time, and maybe it was because of Mikey's actions that what's spurred Axel to become a cop. Uh, yeah, good call on that one. I do like it.
1: Great points, Bill, because that just made me think that's where you can get a sense of Axel's beginnings. You know, he was probably you know kind of a rough, around-the-edges type of kid when he was growing up, and that's probably where he got his street smarts from. Right? Mm -hmm. Enhances his ability to be an undercover cop. And poor Mikey Tandino, he's one of those characters you understand is troubled. He's a lovable loser. The guy's a loser and can't get out of his own way, has a bad habit of stealing. (laughs) Right. He's a thief. And of course, it's reinforced later when Eddie Murphy goes to visit their friend in common, Jenny Summers, out in Beverly Hills and tells her that Michael's dead. And before that, even he says, I wanted to talk to you about Michael. And she says, oh, he get in trouble again because that's his rep. That's that's Mikey Tendido. He always is getting in trouble.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because there is a quick example of you saying he always gets in his own way when Axel is playing pool against the other guy and the guy calls the pocket. and He's like, oh, no way. I bet you hundred bucks you're going to miss. And of course, the guy thinks it no problem. Yep. That's just probably his luck all the time. This always makes the wrong call. In that span of eight minutes, you definitely know he's made a, a couple of bad calls. It's just
1: one of those characters that's unlucky at life. He's made some bad choices, too.
0: Yeah. Moving on, what's your next
1: favorite moment or scene?
0: Uh, so for me, it's, uh, it's time for late supper. <laughs> Great. At this point in the movie, Axel has now gone to Los Angeles to investigate Mikey's murder. And as we mentioned in the opening quotes, the first thing that Axel goes to do is to question the people that hired Mikey. And of course, the people don't like that because Axel kind of barges in and just starts asking questions. And uh, Victor Maitland, who is this famous art dealer and owns the warehouse that Mikey was working in, doesn't like these questioning or the accusations and literally has Axel thrown out a window on the first floor of his office building, which is then he gets arrested and we meet Rosewood and Taggart, Judge Reinhold and John Ashton. And we meet their supervisor, which is uh, Bogomil, played by Ronnie Cox. And Bogomil gives him the warning, if you're out here in Los Angeles investigating Mikey's murder, you better stop or else you're not going to have a job when you return to Detroit. So they let Axel go. But Bogomil wants Taggart and Rosewood to follow him. And Jenny was nice enough to bail him out. She takes him back to the hotel that he's staying at. But, of course, right away... Axel knows that he's being tailed and we have Rosewood and Taggart outside the hotel watching the hotel and Axel decides he's going to have a little fun with them because he of course still wants to investigate this murder and he needs to get to the warehouse that Mikey worked at to see if he can find some clues. So the first thing that he needs to do is to distract Rosewood and Taggart and he decides from the hotel to call down a late supper. So, a cool little scene. You have Rosewood and Taggart in the car and they almost have that old married couple vibe because Judge Reinhold Rosewood is reading from a magazine and he says, Oh, I noticed you've been drinking a lot of coffee lately. And you just hold this whole thing about eating too much red meat. So it shows that he's a little concerned and you can just tell Taggart's like, just shut up. Like he hears this stuff all the time from Rosewood and he just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And then the, Axel F. music starting to play. This waiter comes out of the hotel, this nice little silver tray, and literally walking across the street, uh, waiting for traffic to go by. And he puts the dish in front of the car. And, of course, Tiger and Rose are, what the hell is this? What, what's, what's going on here? And he's like, oh, this is a late supper, compliments of Mr. Foley. And, of course, Rosewood's question is like, how does he know we're here? And Taggart just says this great line. He's like, because I let you drive. That just makes me chuckle. Cause you know, this is just something that goes on over and over again with these two that Taggart's always probably showing Rose with the ropes and he's a good cop, but he, he just makes those little stupid errors. So while the waiter is serving them the food, of course Rosewood accepts it. Taggart doesn't want to do it. Eddie goes down to the lobby, gets some bananas from a vendor played by Damon Wayans, who's making his big screen debut. Sorry if I stepped on your, hey, it's that actor. And he sneaks across the street, takes the bananas, sticks them up the tailpipe of the car, runs back to the hotel. Jenny comes with the car. He jumps in the back, waves at him, and takes off. So now, Roser and Taggart realize, oh, crap, we got to tail him, throw the food back on the tray, try to send the waiter off. They go to follow But because the bananas are in the tailpipe of the car, the car stalls and Axel gets away. It's a pretty funny scene. Um, There's even like a, a cool little moment when Axel's putting the bananas in the tailpipe and the waiter sees what he's doing. And Eddie just kind of gives him like a little nod and the waiter swinks winks at him. He's in on the bit, which is just great that he's just playing along and it's not letting these gentlemen know because I don't know if the waiter knows that they're cops. But uh, the fact that he's going to be on the bit and help this play out, I thought is a, a neat moment also within the scene. All of it's wonderful.
1: All of it. It just works so well. It, that's a. I mean, I should have put that in my earliest memories. I mean, the whole sending the food to the guy staking out out on the street was genius and then using that. So that's – but that's not the actual bit. Like that was just the distraction. But that's funny unto itself that Rosewood is about to enjoy a shrimp salad sandwich. You yes. know, I mean it's just – all of it is funny. The fact that it's a shrimp salad sandwich, like that, that's good writing. So it's – there's those subtle things in all of it's funny. And then you get him putting the bananas in the tailpipe. Great stuff, man. I love when he's even in the hotel room with Jenny and he's like hold on for a couple of seconds while I make this phone call and he's so subtly is <laughs> ordering this food. I'm going to order from the late supper menu, which I didn't even know that was a thing, right? But I'm sure it was. It's great. Man, you know, when I listen to you break this down and I think about these scenes and it just makes me smile. Man, what a feel good movie. And I'm going to take it a little bit back. For my favorite scene number two, which is really a compilation of scenes, I'm going to go through it quickly. I'm calling it Welcome to Beverly Hills (laughs) because, man, after he tells Inspector Todd, this is immediately after Michael Tandino, his best friend, has been murdered. And now you can see the wheels are turning. Axel is already thinking about how am I going to get away with investigating this crime? He's taking it very personal. And Inspector Todd is a little wary of uh, what, are, what are you up to, taking some vacation. But Eddie Murphy's like, "No, nah, I just need a break." So he allows him to take vacation. Eddie Murphy then, well, this is where Patty LaBelle's stirred up kicks in, and we just see the palm trees, which is just a great cut oh, yeah. we don't need to see him road tripping out to Beverly Hills. It's like boom, he's there and he's in his beat up blue Chevy Nova, cruising the strip. We see the palm trees with the great music pumping and we got eddie murphy staring at the people on the streets of rodeo drive and their current fashion and hairstyles and all the cars and he pulls up to the beverly palm hotel and attempts to check in under the guise of a uh, a junior reporter for rolling stone magazine who's there to interview michael jackson it's a great bit it's especially hilarious when he finds out at the end because the whole bit he goes on this diatribe and gets mad because He's he's acting mad because he knows he hasn't booked a room and there's no rooms available. So he puts together this improv bit that he's a reporter. And at the end, he managed to pull it off and gets a deal on a room that's a suite, but he's going to get the single room rate. And then he finds out the single room rate is way beyond his budget. He just has this blank stare on his face and he just goes, fine. That that'll be fine. Oh yeah, everybody <laughs> in the
0: theater was cracking up at that part. Everybody, even now, two hundred and thirty bucks. I'm still it's too goddamn expensive. For yeah, a hotel room. I
1: read in the research when you in, in today's dollars, I think it's something like six hundred thirty bucks. So you could, I mean, that's deep, man. But it makes sense, Beverly Hills, right? Yeah. And the song kicks back in as he moves on down the street, and he laughs at two gentlemen passing by in Michael Jackson style outfits, the leather jackets and parachute pants. He makes it over to – I love that moment, actually, when he cracks up. There's a little inside joke there, too, because of his two stand-up routines where he's wearing all leather just like those guys. It's funny because he just laughs at them because it's so the opposite of everything he knows and everything he is, that character he's playing as Axel Foley from Detroit. So he finally makes it over to Jenny Summer's art studio where he meets Serge, Jenny's assistant. He's examining like this a really weird art installation while he's waiting to uh, meet up with Jenny. And it's like a big table. And it's these weird stand-up people with chains around the necks. Anyway, it's really alternative and strange. And all of a sudden, Serge, the assistant, comes over. And Axel's like, hi. And you <laughs> Serge just immediately goes, I'm fine. I'm Serge. How may I help you? And it's just Bronson Pinchot going after it, going for it. And he does some kind of ridiculous like European accent. And it's probably the best, smallest supporting role of all time. I was laughing my ass off. I laugh my ass off every time he does it. He offers Axel an espresso with a lemon twist. And you can see as he's doing it, he almost cracks up. He smiles. He's like, I can get you an espresso with a lemon twist. And then it cuts back to Eddie Murphy. And he's having a hard time keeping a straight face. It's absolutely wonderful. Especially, of course, there's a lot. There's some, a lot of quotable stuff here in this exchange between Serge and Axel. Big but time. He tells Axel that the art installation costs $130,000. And Axel's like, get the fuck out of here. And of course, he responds immediately replies, no, I'm not going to get the fuck out. Uh, you know, I have to, you know, I just sold this. And it's just great. And what's amazing about this, speaking of contrast, it goes from this scene, which is just almost laugh out loud like crying. It just goes by so quickly to then eddie murphy meeting up with jenny summers and it just goes to the opposite extreme when he has to tell her that michael tandino is dead and it gets really dramatic really quick and it works somehow goes from extreme comedy to then extreme drama and you see eddie's acting chops it's great now we're rolling now we're about like 25 minutes into the movie And Eddie's then is going to go walk right into Victor Maitland's office pretending to be a flower delivery man. And we're off and running. So just that whole welcome to Beverly Hills compilation there in a matter of maybe five to 10 minutes is great. Love that stuff.
0: Great call, Jason, because trying to figure out what my favorite scenes and moments for this movie are, I was like, what do I have to cut? And I didn't want to cut out the surge scene. And I was like, ah, I'll just bring it up later. But oh my God, Bronson Pinchot steals that scene. Even when he first comes in and just looks Axel over, there's no way you should be in this fucking art gallery. It's just great. <laughs> just the voice. And then when it goes up, when he says like, yeah, $130,000. No, I'm serious. I saw one myself, you know. You're yeah. just like, oh my god! Yeah. And then the way it even ends is when he has the other worker come up to him, and he's like, "Tell oh, Jenny yeah. that Axel, Axel, Akmel Axel." And he keeps Achwell. trying to correct them, and then he just says Axel, and he just goes Foley. He just says, "Yeah, he just says Foley,", yeah, he just right, says, Foley. Yeah. and he's like, "Button, button that up, button that up." He's like, "That's not sexy. That's not sexy at all." It's like an animal. Every line he says is a scream. It's too funny. Yeah, just go
1: go YouTube it, watch it, laugh your ass off. He's brilliant. And it works because it doesn't feel like a bit either. No, it doesn't. That's the thing too. This is what happens in Beverly Hills. Like you go into some high-priced, super pretentious art studio and you would run into someone like this who is just over the top and eccentric in some way. It represents, again, like you just, I'm just going to return to the word you said earlier, the contrast between what you might experience on Rodeo Drive versus the streets of Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it by any means. It's just, it's just (laughs) really different. Right. And it takes uh, Axel off guard. It's a great scene. What's next up for you, Bill Bant?
0: So uh, this is my last favorite scene moment. Like I said, they're so hard to pick. It's the super cops. It's Eddie's super cop speech, and oh yeah, after Axel had uh, thwarted Rosewood and Taggart from following him, he comes back to the hotel. He actually jumps in their police car and uh, scares the shit out of them. Apologizes for having to ditch them. They turn around and say, "Well, we you know lost two days pay because of that." Yeah, Axel feels a little bit bad. It says, Hey, let's go out. Let's go get some drinks. And of course, you know, they're on duty. They don't want to get drinks. And that's when we go to the infamous strip club scene. And while they're at the strip club, Axel notices that these two nefarious characters come in and he points it out to Taggart and says, Something's going to go down. Check out that one guy. I'm going to go to the other. Let's see what happens. And you come to find out these two guys were there to rob the strip club. And luckily Axel thwarts the crime. And the two guys are arrested. But of course, because of it, Rosewood and Tagger get in trouble again because here they are in a strip club on duty and they shouldn't be there. So Axel makes up this story saying that this is what happened. Here I am on vacation. I just want to have a great time. I went into the strip club and I'm just minding my own business. And they were outside just, you know, waiting for me to come back out. And they noticed these two gentlemen going in. And they're the ones that thwarted the burglary. These guys are amazing. They're super cops. I had no idea what was going on. And he goes in this whole long speech and it's just great too, because it could have been a blown take. Cause John Ashton is literally just pinching his eyes because he, he's just trying to keep it together, but it, it does work for the story because he, you know, cause it's more of that. I have an intense headache cause he is fucking lying and. I can't look at Bogomil in the face because he's going to know right away that Axel is lying. And then supposedly I read that Judge Reinhold literally had his hand in his pocket and was pinching his thigh so the pain would be more intense than him trying to laugh out loud so they would not blow the take. But at the very end, when Axel tells the story, Bogomil says to Taggart, all right, what really happened? And Taggart proceeds to tell the truth that it was Axel that saw what was going on and was able to take the perpetrators down. And yes, they realized they were in the strip club and they shouldn't have been in there, but Hey, they only had club sodas and the scene ends with Axel being dismissed. And I had to write this down because I just thought it was kind of funny. He's like, before I go, I just want you two to know something. All right. The super cop story was working. Okay. It was working. And you guys just messed it up. Okay. I'm trying to figure guys out but I haven't yet, but it's cool. Fuck up a perfectly good lie. I think in a way, in order for him to solve this case, uh, he's going to need their help, but he's still trying to figure out the right way to go about it, to get them on board because they know that he's possibly out there trying to solve this crime and he, and he shouldn't be. And in the meantime, he is breaking some laws there in Beverly Hills. At least it shows them that he is a good cop because he did make a bad first impression. He's got good instincts and, I think in a way this kind of helps him a little bit also show that, Hey, he's trying to stand up for his fellow cop and he is a good officer himself. So great. When he does that, get that improv quote that, that
1: you just read is fucked up. Perfectly good lie. You know, like it just, it's amazing. It's just great. I love that behind the scenes story too, about them just trying not to crack up, but doing everything not to crack up in that scene. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well done. Great, great, great scene. Great moment because you pretty much covered it. My final favorite scene was the strip club scene and oh, okay. I've always loved it. I don't know what else to say about it. I'll just try to to kind of revisit a little bit here. Axel feels a little bad about making it a little rough on Rosewood and Taggart by putting the bananas in the tailpipe earlier that evening, etc., and wants to take them out for a drink and they kind of refuse at first, but can he convinces them to go? And it turns out to be this strip club and you brought this up in your earliest memories. I mean, it's embarrassing to watch as a kid, probably especially with your mother. But oh, yeah. when they just sit down and immediately Axel is like, Billy, it's okay if your dick gets hard. You know, it's just, that's what's supposed to happen. Now, uh, Taggart stick he's it's not going to get hard because he's your boss and he's supposed to be the, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, it's just great. You've got this really hot erotic dancer going on the pole behind them to the song Nasty Girl by Vanity Six. We're just not on the soundtrack for some reason. But when Axel is about to tell the detectives, Rosewood and Taggart, about the coffee grounds he found at Victor Mainland's warehouse is when he notices those uh, questionable-looking customers stroll into the club wearing the overcoats. And like you said, he takes them out. But I love the way he takes them out. It's when Axel approaches one of those nefarious characters, as you said, at the bar. He pretends to be intoxicated. Phil! Phil, hey hey man, what's happening, Phil? I knew that was you. They told me it wasn't, but you say they said you don't come here anymore. But I said, Phil, Philip, give me a kiss, baby. It's just it's wonderful. And the guy pulls the shotgun out and he's like, What you doing with all these guns, man? You changed, man. It's just great. And it's a great little move that Axel pulls on that thug, just grabbing the shotgun while he gives them two elbows to the face. Grabs the shotgun, flips him to the ground. Meanwhile, Tagger gets the drop on the other thug and tells him to freeze. Rosewood runs over a bit too late after the scene is contained and yells, Don't move! Turn over! And Axel replies, Way to go, Rosewood. You're some kind of cop, you know that? Anyway, it's just a fun scene. The hot girl in the background dancing to a hot song with some good action. And I'm not sure how that scene otherwise really moves the story forward outside of establishing... Axel is a good cop, capable cop, and probably kind of proves himself a little bit to Rosewood and Taggart. I guess that's the point. And gets Rosewood and Taggart out of the office for a little fun. But, yeah, it's great. I would love the strip club scene.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of ballsy, too, with Axel when the guy is pointing the shotgun at him because I mean he could blow him away. Oh, yeah. He still comes at him with his drunken stupor and then just... Wow, wow, before you even know what happens, the guy's on the floor yeah. with the shotgun in his face, and then Billy comes running over. Don't move. Turn around. Way to go,
1: Rosewood. <laughs> I've got a couple more favorite moments that I'll get through quickly. Did you have anything else for the segment? No,
0: I tried to keep it at three, but I figured I'm going to bring yeah. it up at some other point. I'll try to stick him in somewhere else, but go ahead.
1: Absolutely. I just wanted to mention that uh, when Axel Rosewood and Jenny go back to Victor's warehouse— I love the fact that when Jenny Summers wants to go with Axel and Rosewood, back to the warehouse, Axel clearly tells her she shouldn't because she's not a cop. And although she does go with, I appreciate the fact that this point is addressed in the movie yes. because it's never addressed in other movies. We brought this up a couple of times before where civilians are just joining up with either cops or detectives do their work, i.e. shoot to kill with Tom Berenger just hanging out with Sidney Poitier the whole time. He's not even a cop, and he's doing all these cop things. That shouldn't ever happen. So I like the fact that they address that. And then finally, I love the moment when Taggart meets up with Axel and Rosewood at Maitland's Compound right before the final action set piece. And Taggart finally decides he's in because he's really on the fence, and he thinks they need to still do things by the book. And that would just take too long. And he goes to the trunk of his car and grabs the shotgun. And it's just a moment where I always am like, hell yeah, mm-hmm. let's go. We're going in to hell with the book. So that's it for me.
0: All right. So let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have hope. Yes, yeah, so it doesn't fall well, under Swiss cheese. We just filed a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, do you have any complaints or Swiss cheese for Beverly Hills Cop? Well, I definitely have some complaints. You know,
1: here's my minor complaint with the the cold open with that great truck chase. You're telling me that none of the cops could catch those two thugs that ran off on foot? I thought for sure the first guy who never made it back onto the truck was kind of dead to rights, like they got him. And then the other guy, I don't know. I just like, you just no way you catch those guys. I just felt a little bit for Axel because, you know, he gets in a lot of trouble for starting the whole thing. And they don't get the guys, and the whole thing goes sour. It's like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, because the first guy they they should have got, this is the partner should have jumped out of the car and chased that one guy down. And instead, they just went after the truck and let the guy run away, which was kind of dumb. And then the second guy, yeah, why did you use all your resources to go after one guy in the back? Mm-hmm. He's like half go after the guy and half cover the back of the truck.
1: It's it's a little nitpicky, but here's my real complaint with that opening sequence. is at the very end. We're watching the driver, the thug that's, uh or the, the criminal that's driving the truck over all the cars and creating explosions. He's clearly a little bit older, a little rough around the edges and has a receding hairline or thinning hair. As soon as he finally stops the truck and gets out and runs, it's clearly a stunt double who's younger with a full head of hair and is a lot more muscularly built and runs off. You get two clear shots of him and you're like... What? Yeah. <laughs> they just, like, wow, it couldn't be more obvious. Really fun stunt double that doesn't look at all
0: like the actor. Yeah. Here's my big complaint. Axel's uh, Chevy Nova. Mm-hmm. You're trying to tell me he drove that from Detroit to Los Angeles? <laughs> that car ain't making it. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good call. You would have to stop many, many times for repairs that he probably couldn't afford. That's true. When he goes into Maitland's office. Yeah, my friend Mickey Tandino killed a month ago. So it took me that long to get out here in my car. Right, no doubt.
1: I love there's a moment earlier when he goes back to his apartment to find Michael waiting for him there that he parks his Nova and it just starts rolling backwards, even though it's barely on an incline. Like, oh, it's I know. like almost totally horizontal, but it still rolls backwards and he has to jump in and hit the parking brake. Car's got issues, but it's a kind of a character. Answer, yeah, so is great. Good point, though. Really good point. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the scene, which I put as my first favorite scene between Axel and Mike or Mikey reveals that he has the stolen German bear bonds and he does it immediately. And I understand that these two ran around doing kind of crime when they were younger, but he knows that Axel is a cop now. I was like, is this a little too much too soon to reveal that he stole these bear bonds to his cop
0: buddy? I agree with that.
1: It's kind of like, that's a, that's a lot. That's a heavy load to kind of put on your cop friend. And I would have thought that he would have kind of warmed up to that fact or not shown him at all until the time is right, whenever that would be. And then when they get back from the bar and Mikey's clearly drunk and kind of tipsy and
0: Axel's got to hold him up.
1: Mikey has the bag with the bear bonds with him. Right. Why? He took the bear bonds with him to the bar.
0: Yeah. You should have that scene in the bar because Axel could be like, what are you carrying? And then he's like, yeah, look, look what I got. And then that would make more sense. He's like, not letting these out of my sight. Mm -hmm. But no, I agree with that. The way they introduced the bonds is not the best. You could still work it in there.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to bring it up again in my additional thoughts and questions. Yeah.
0: This was kind of complaint. I felt like Jenny Summers is a little bit wasted. I don't know how much she really brings to the table. Yeah. I'm not 100% sold that her, Mikey, and Axel ran around as friends. I could see maybe if they were... Maybe childhood, childhood. But once they got to high school, they certainly went their separate ways and maybe kept in touch a little bit. But I don't. I didn't see them running together all through their adolescence.
1: Fair point. I agree. If there was a character that wasn't fully re- like fleshed out, realized, or used to the utmost, yeah, it would be her for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, she doesn't have a lot to do other than get Axel Foley around a bit and then be held hostage at the very end. Right. Point. And
0: then why has she been held hostage? What is Victor doing with that?
1: What is he holding her hostage for? That's an unanswered question. Why wouldn't he take her out at the same time he's going to take out Axel at the warehouse? All fair points. Solid complaints, my friend. Anything else? Uh, Maybe you can help me understand this. Axel Foley's tactics in going straight at Victor Maitland. Now, he's supposed to kind of be this undercover detective. And in the beginning of the film, he goes straight up to Victor Maitland's office and confronts him, making his presence known. And then later goes to the expensive Harrow Club, the Beverly Hills restaurant, makes a scene stating that he knows Victor is up to no good. Basically saying, if I find out you had anything to do with Michael Tandino getting killed, I'm going to fuck you up, which is I actually like that scene, too. But is this tactic of poking the bear to simply provoke victor into coming after him and perhaps slipping up or making a mistake because it's not quite the idea behind undercover detective work is it i mean he's really just going after him and then and it ends up getting arrested a couple of times so what's the point outside of saying hey i'm on to you but wouldn't that almost scare him off
0: So this as i say about that so the first time that axel goes to visit victor and he asks him about mikey I mean, there's a good chance that Victor doesn't even know who this guy is because you don't know how big Victor's business is. Would he really be the one that's going to hire him to be a security guard at his warehouse? to,
1: yeah, He's got to feel that out a little bit. So I
0: think Axel comes on him a little too hard, and I think Victor almost has a right to do what he did, not necessarily throw him through the window, but escort him out the door. But I had less problems with the second time. I don't know. I kind of like it that he calls him out on it because maybe in a way he's trying to scare him into stopping him or scare him into making a mistake. I had more trouble with the yeah, first time he sees yeah. him than the second time. Mm, okay. Yeah, I had it had it reversed because I actually like the logic
1: behind the first one. Because he doesn't know for sure, first of all, who this Victor Maitland character is or if he really had anything to do with Michael's death. Correct. But he almost makes
0: it seem like from the get-go, he's already accusing
1: him of having something to do with it. Yeah, there's a moment where he does turn in that little conversation and then he goes after him a bit, just with one line, and that's when Victor realizes, oh, no, this conversation is over. Later on, it seems a bit more emotionally charged when he goes after him. It's like, what were you hoping to accomplish by just walking into this restaurant and getting into it with him? I don't know. Overthinking it, it's still great. they are great scenes. I'm going to stop thinking about it
0: now. Okay. And then um just for me for my final I don't know if I'd call it a complaint, but it's more I guess it'd be more of a question. Do you think Bogomil comes around too quickly on Foley?
1: Uh that's a great that's a mm, that's a good observation. Yeah, it's a quick turnaround, no question, but I just go with it. Where do you think he it depends on what when are you talking about? It in, in the middle when Well the fact
0: that he stands up for him at the end, like he doesn't have to do that.
1: No. No, I think he actually defends Axel earlier on when he says, okay, let's play it out. Like they're at the Beverly Hills Police Department. Right. And he's like, okay, just for the sake of argument, let's hear your case thus far, Axel. Which is like, okay, Bogomil's cool. He's going to listen to him, lay it out. But then still says, no, we don't have enough evidence.
0: Yeah, that's good that you point out that scene because he knows back in Detroit That Inspector Todd already has mentioned something to Bogomil about, like, if he's investigating this case, he's not coming back. So Bogomil knows that. So why would he even let Axel present what he has? Because you would think, all right, cops stick up for cops, but you would think supervisors would stick up for supervisors, too. For sure. For sure. And the fact that he would even try to hear him out. I'm kind of surprised because he's not interacting with as much as Rosewood and Taggart is like Bogomil knows he's a good cop because of what happened at the strip club and the fact that he would stand up for his other right. cops. But at that time, too, it, it would be a red flag. The fact that he's lying for these other guys. What is he trying to do in order to figure out this investigation? I, I don't know. It maybe would put me on a right in, edge. In, this is all happening on Bogomil's watch, right? He
1: can't have a rogue detective from out of town just running around doing vigilante work. In defense of your argument, I agree that Bogomil should be a little bit more on the fence or, yeah, a little bit more in a position of authority and being by the book. So to answer your question, I agree that his turn at the end, I'd like it. I go with it, but is it is it a little quick? Yeah, because he I agree with you. He doesn't share the same relationship or camaraderie with Axel that obviously Rosewood and Taggart do. There hasn't been
0: a relationship development. Unless it's a tactic to get what he needs out of Axel. He's like, you know what? I'll play along. And then I'll Mm -hmm. let Inspector Todd know that he is out here investigating. I'm going to nail him. And then when he hears what Axel has to say, he's like, ooh. Okay, this is bigger than I thought. It's not just about a murder. This is about smuggling stuff. Maybe he's surprised by what he hears and decides he's not going to just play along. He's actually going to help. Maybe I answered my own question there.
1: Yeah, there could have used uh, maybe an extra scene and it could have been brief with Bogamil maybe looking into Axel's this case. Like he's like, well, maybe I'll just ask around or find out if there's any credence to what Axel is saying. And then finds out, oh, there might be something here. It's just that there isn't enough evidence yet to do anything about it. But then all of a sudden, everything breaks, you know, all hell breaks loose. And then he can kind of swoop in at the end. But I I don't know. But it's a good point. Bogomil makes a quick turn. Did you have anything else? One last thing. It's just common trope in 80s action films. There's henchmen popping up everywhere in the final action set piece with machine guns. And it's just funny. Because they can't hit a damn no, thing. No. They're like stormtroopers in Star Wars. It's one thing if the henchmen were surprised by Axel and Taggart and Rosewood showing up or, you know, popping up around a corner and shooting them. But they're not. They have the drop on Axel and the guys. And they still miss with all their machine guns. Yeah, it just shows those Uzis were a piece of shit.
0: But, yeah, all three of them should have been at least shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the three should have died.
1: Yeah, well... Yeah, in a previous version. That's That's true. Stepping on trivia. One of them did.
0: All right, so let's move on to Hey, It's That Actor. All right. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. Jason, who do you have for Hey, It's That Actor?
1: You know what? I went with a guy I've been talking about all along, and that's James Russo, who plays Michael Tandino. He's extremely recognizable. I don't believe he's a household name even to this day, but you see him in something, you're like, hey, it's that actor. So I'm going with James Russo, and, or maybe it's James Russo, but I'm calling him Russo. For his 80s snapshot, you know, he played a robber in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which also starred Judge Reinhold, yep. although they did not share a scene together. He was the character Bugsy in Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, James Russo was also in The Cotton Club and then... Yeah, that's right. He plays the character Frank Sacco in season two, episode one of Miami Vice, entitled The Prodigal Son. You knew I was going. Oh, to yeah. Bill Band. Uh, he was also in Extremities and the TV show Crime Story, The Blue Iguana, and then We're No Angels. So that was James Russo's 80s snapshot. He's definitely known for his tough guy roles. He's been in a ton of things. You'd recognize him in uh, The Postman and Open Range, one of my favorite Westerns, actually, the Kevin Costner movie. Still working today. Here's a little fun fact. He worked as a cab driver for three years and a grave digger before becoming an actor. And as of 2022, James Russo has appeared in five films with Teresa Russell. Cold Heaven from 91, The House Next Door from 2002, The Box from 2003, On the Doll from 2007, and Dark World from 2008. James Russo. Good actor.
0: I always like it when he, I, he pops up in something. No, good call, man. Definitely a big fan of his in, in this movie. Uh, so for me, my hated son actor is Michael Gregory. And Michael Gregory uh, was the front desk manager when Axel Foley checks into the Beverly Palms Hotel. Absolutely, yeah. Michael did a lot, a lot of television work in the 80s. So here's some of the shows that Michael would appear in. These are just 80s TV shows. And I just love going through this list because so many of these shows I forgot about, but I did watch as a kid. So we have The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, BJ and the Bear, Quincy, Simon and Simon, Manimal, The Fall Guy, Auto Man, Matt Houston, Hardcastle and McCormick, Crazy Like a Fox, The A-Team, You Again, Hunter, and My Sister Sam. I love that Manimal is in there oh yeah i think every kid around our age loved that show and that was about it that was the demographic for that show unfortunately we were not (laughs) the nielsen people that they wanted and uh that the show didn't last very long but god that was hilarious I picked Michael Gregory because this takes us back to season one, episode one of our show, because Michael Gregory would appear in RoboCop as the SWAT team leader. Hell yeah. Absolutely. I can see him. Yeah. um, yeah, Leads the assault on Robo at the end of the garage. And he was also um, with the city councilman when he was taking hostages. So Michael Gregory coming full circle with him. I love it. Michael Gregory. That's great. Yeah, and he used to be a, a bodyguard for uh, Dean Martin in the 70s before his uh, career took off. Found that as a crazy little factoid. That's fun. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely recognizable. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely it's, hey, it's that actor. And,
0: again, that list of 80s shows is great. All right, so that takes us to our facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Beverly Hills Cop? Uh,
1: I like this, man. You talked about this scene a little bit that I'm about to mention. To cast the roles of Rosewood and Taggart, the director paired up various finalists and asked them to do some improvisation to get a feel for their chemistry. He paired up Judge Reinhold and John Ashton and gave them the following direction. You are a middle-aged couple, married for years. You are having a conversation on an average evening. Then Reinhold immediately picked up a nearby magazine and the two improvised the five pounds of red meat in his bowels bit almost exactly as it eventually appeared in the movie. That's hilarious. So when those two actors that got the roles were auditioning, they actually improv that because they were pretending to be a middle-aged couple, like married couple.
0: And it's really funny in the movie. And for the longest time, I thought that was true. I'm like, oh, my God, when I'm 50 years old, I'm have 5 pounds. <laughs> th- it's exactly
1: what I thought. I mean, I'm 49 now, and I'm going, oh, my God, so do I have like 4.8 pounds? Yeah.
0: You better watch a red meat for the rest of the year. <laughs> As you noted earlier, uh, Martin Brest was originally the director of War Games, and he unfortunately got fired about, I think, about two weeks into production. But he took some of his uh, War Games notes and stuff and moved it to Beverly Hills Cop because the police station, the Beverly Hills Police Station, was inspired by some of his drawings for the NORAD scenes for War Games. So all that yeah, Work he put into War Games ended up being the Beverly Hills Cop Police Station.
1: Right. I came across that trivia as well because he wanted it to look like private security for all rich people. Yep. Good stuff, man. Also, if you look at Wikipedia, the usual sites, uh, there's some great production notes and production behind the scenes. And there's a lot on Sylvester Stallone's involvement oh, yeah. with the production. And at first, of course, because we make a—it's a running joke because it seems as though Sylvester Stallone was up for every single role in every single 80s movie, according to Wikipedia or IMDb. But this seems to be fact that in mid-production and mid-writing processes that went on from 1977 all the way through 1985, you know, a lot of things change and the story develops and et cetera. But Stallone was attached at one point in the midst of all of the, the production and he was signed to play the lead role And Stallone, though, decided to give the film a dramatic rewrite and make it much more of a straight-action film. And when he was asked about it in an interview a few years back, uh, Stallone remarked, When I read the script for Beverly Hills Cop, I thought they'd sent it to the wrong house. Somehow, me trying to comically terrorize Beverly Hills is not the stuff that great yuck festivals are made from. So I rewrote the script to suit what I do best, and by the time I was done, it looked like the opening scene from Savic Private Ryan on the beaches of Normandy. Believe it or not, the finale was me and a stolen Lamborghini playing chicken with an oncoming freight train being driven by the ultra slimy bad guy. Needless to say, they drop kicked me and my script out of the office and the rest is history. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So Stallone was involved, rewrote it as a straight action film, and that did not... Go over.
0: All right. So the opening scene, which I mentioned is one of my favorite scenes, uh, the truck used during the opening chase sequence was referred to on set as the train. And its front bumper was replaced by a steel I-beam, which explains why it could crush all those cars like that. Oh, yeah. So Eddie Murphy did many of the stunts during this sequence, and all this stuff was shot in downtown L.A., not in Detroit. And, of course, the shot of Axa Foley flying out the back and hitting the side of the truck was obviously a stuntman who did not want to do that stunt again afterwards because supposedly he slammed into that truck pretty hard, even though we laughed and thought it was funny. It wasn't funny to the stuntman.
1: Got it. When the LAPD is trying to find Foley and Rosewood toward the end of the film, they use a satellite tracking system. At the time, that was totally made up to advance the plot. It was invented later, a predecessor of the modern-day global positioning system, otherwise known as GPS. It was funny because I was watching the film, of course, and at the end I'm going, how are they locating... Foley and Rosewood, how do they know where the car is? is? Did they have a system back in 84 where it was kind of like a low jack is on the car or something like that, where they could identify the location of their officers around the city? But no, it was just made up.
0: Yeah, I never thought of that until later on. I'm like, wait a second, how are they tracking? Speaking of tracking, so Victor Maitland's house is technically three different places. So we have the front exterior. Which we see Axel pull up to, to do the little stakeout and then Victor leaves and he takes off. And then we have the gunfight, which was um, a house in Santa Monica, I believe, up in the hills that they do all the exterior stuff for. And then the indoor stuff is another house because the place that did the exteriors did not want them to be inside shooting up the house. So they had to find a third place to do the interior. So that's a compilation of three different houses. And I think It looks like it, but I think the exterior of the house is also used for Commando. I think it's the same house. That's what they say, but I'm not 100% sure. I should have probably fact checked that a little bit better. Yeah, it kind of looks like it. Right, and uh, supposedly I had read
1: that when he's at the gate, like the gate of the front of the house, when he's talking to the other cop duo, the banana and the tailpipe scene, I guess that perspective of Maitland's house was also used in Blind Date with Bruce Willis. Oh, okay.
0: Cool. And then another thing I thought I read, which I'm not 100% sure is true, but I was like, it looks like it is. So in the Detroit scene, any of the stuff with Eddie Murphy in Detroit was shot in Los Angeles. So um, I think the only things they shot in Detroit were the pickups for the opening. When he comes into the police office and you see him run up the stairs to go into the back, that's supposedly the same set that they used for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the Jennifer Grey, Charlie Sheen.
1: Yeah, that police station, yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool, I love it. It definitely looks the same. I'll have to keep that in mind next time I see it. Once I go into the back locker, not at all, but that opening definitely looks the same when it comes from up the stairs. That that looks the same.
1: Got it. Again, I don't know if this is true or not. This is from IMDb. I'm going to say it's true for now, in this moment. This film holds the record for selling the most rented titles on the Betamax format At the time of the film's home rental release in December 1984, Betamax was still a significant competitor to VHS, although the industry would stop supplying new releases on Betamax by the end of the 1980s.
0: Yeah, I didn't know very many people
1: to Betamax. I knew one. That's where I'm at. One. My neighbor, Matt Schlosser.
0: Okay, so my last fact that I'll throw in there, the art gallery that we see was originally a shoe store. On, I think it's on Rodeo Drive, and they just like the look of it. So they had to take all that stuff out for the art gallery. And then that main piece that Serge and Axel talk about, and I didn't notice this until I I read this, it's actually a forced perspective piece. And when I watched the movie after I read this, I was like, oh yeah, you can definitely see that it's forced perspective. All the art in there, nothing of it was really of value, except for there's a, a mobile in the scene where Victor comes in to see Jenny, mm-hmm. it's like behind his shoulder. That piece of art was actually a real piece of art, and that was worth $130,000, which I think is where they got the $130,000 for the gotcha. crazy uh, chair and mannequin pieces. And supposedly, the one, the Major D that you see with the chain around his neck in that center art piece is supposed to be a likeness of the director, uh, Martin Breast. It's like a little tribute to him. Aha. Uh-huh. That's funny. Cool. The fancy looking shoe store.
1: Yeah. And it's funny what location scouts and how it all comes about with the set design, set dressing and production design. When they choose these locations and they they don't actually try to find an actual art gallery, they're like, no, this space feels right or looks right from the outside or interior. We can use it better as far as moving the camera around, getting angles and things like that. And then they have to like gut the whole place. Mm -hmm. You know, go through all that effort just to change a place to make it look like the way they want it to instead of just finding a place it's just another facet of filmmaking that's fascinating where it's a lot of work goes into this stuff, ladies and gentlemen, that to make the magic mm-hmm. it's not magic, it's a lot of blood sweat and tears a lot of people working on that. My last little factoid would be that on November fourteenth twenty nineteen deadline, Hollywood announced that. Paramount Pictures made a one-time license deal with an option for a sequel to Netflix to create the fourth film in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. And in April 2022, Mark Malloy was announced as the film's director while Will Beale pens the script.
0: Supposedly they have started shooting it, and I'm hoping Beverly Hills Cop 4 will do for the Beverly Hills Cop series what Rocky Balboa did for the Rocky series is... Make you forget the last one. Right. Because three is god awful. I thank God that's not an 80s movie because we don't have to cover that one. That's true. Yeah, we can just forget about that yeah, one. Fingers
1: crossed that they uh, course correct with the new movie. No doubt. And I, I'm already looking forward to covering Beverly Hills Cop 2 on this very podcast. Yes.
0: All right. So let us move on to box office. So Beverly Hills Cop was released on December 5th, 1984, in 1,532 theaters. On an estimated budget of $13 million, it grossed $234.8 million domestically and $81.5 million internationally for a worldwide gross of, let's all do the math, $316.3 million. The film opened number one at the box office and held that spot for an additional 12 weeks, where it fell to number two to a movie we covered on this podcast back in season one, Witness and then recaptured the number one spot again the following week and stayed in the top 10 for another 13 weeks. Beverly Hills Cop was the second highest-grossing movie of 1984 behind Ghostbusters in the U.S. and the highest-grossing R-rated comedy in the United States until it was surpassed by The Hangover in 2009. Beverly Hills Cop is still in the top 10 of the highest-grossing movies domestically for an R-rated movie, the only movie not from the 2000s in the top 10. So that's some staying power. No doubt. All right, so moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Siskel and Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Beverly Hills Cop was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Oh, Yeah. Roger found the script to be lacking and a waste of an idea and a waste of Murphy's talent. Gene faulted the director, Martin Brest, saying he wasn't qualified to direct the action sequences. Amazing.
1: They were both on crack. Yeah.
0: Talking about missing the boat. Wow. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 83%, and it has an IMDB rating of 7.3. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Beverly Hills Cop? Well, Bill Band,
1: let's think about it.
0: What kind of name is Axel Foley?
1: Anyway. I don't think I've ever met another Axel. It's kind of wild, huh? Yeah. Maybe Foley not as much, but yeah, I dig it. So, uh, go ahead, yeah. ask a question. Yeah, here's my or, or present a deep thought. What was Foley's plan to pay for the hotel? I don't think he had one. It's a great question, though. Yeah. We don't get we get don't get to know like what, what like he lucks out <laughs> completely.
0: I just like that Tagger just shows the badge like that's a credit card. Yeah, put it on the police department bill. Right.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I guess he maybe would have like put down his credit card number and then it would have bounced or something. I don't know. I want to see that scene. Insufficient
0: funds.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Really funny though, that he would just take that risk and not really give a damn. Yeah. That's who he is.
0: Because he checks out like he's going to pay.
1: Oh, totally. I brought up in my complaints the fact that Mikey, Axel's best friend, reveals that he stole the bear bonds from Victor Maitland rather quickly. And it seems odd that he would do so. But I was thinking, because I thought when he did that, because I, I wrote it down immediately when it happened. And I, when I was rewatching this, uh, I wrote it down as a complaint. And I was like, oh, wait, as if I had forgotten maybe that it gets explained further later on in the movie. Because I was like, oh, is it possible that Mikey had stolen the bearer bonds not for his own gain But to show Axel that he had undercovered an illegal operation happening behind the ownership of Victor Maitland or, you know, or this front of this art gallery in Beverly Hills. Like as if he's like he discovered this, didn't know what to do with it, didn't want to talk to anybody there in L.A. or Beverly Hills for fear of being found out by Victor Maitland and his crew and thus decided to just take off and go back to Detroit his hometown and present it to Axel. Like that could have been a possibility. I like that. Look at what I found. There's something bad's going on. I'm trying to turn over a new leaf. I could have just taken this, but I'm I'm trying to do good here by uncovering this big drug slash bear bond smuggling operation run by Victor Maitland. And then, of course, it catches up with him and that's why he's killed. I like that. But that's not, for a split second there, I was like, is that what is? do they explain that? in the film. And it was like, no, that's not how I explain It's just that he actually, Mikey did steal. The yeah, universe. he did. But <laughs> since he died, let's present him in a good light. Let's do that. I agree. Here's a thought for you. Speaking of bear bonds for the longest time, I thought it was bear bonds. One word, B A R A B O N D S. And listening to die hard, like watching die hard a million times, watching any film that has bear bonds, especially in the eighties, right? Everything. There's so many things that bear bonds are a thing, right? <laughs> And then, of course, good old spell check corrects me. This is kind of embarrassing to admit, but it's true. It's two words. It's bearer bonds. Two words. B E A R E R. Bearer Bonds.
0: Obviously I've never owned one,
1: so I wouldn't know what it is either. I couldn't explain what a bearer bond is. No.
0: It sounds like that's a that's a totally different a podcast you should be listening to if you need to know what that stuff is. Do right. <laughs> <laughs> you have any other thoughts, questions for me? Oh yeah, just I just want to go over some of my favorite quotes that uh we missed.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot. One of them
0: that I I love to use when I would accidentally walk into a conversation I shouldn't hear, and this was from uh Paul Reiser. This is not my locker. Oh, it's the best. I love when I get in a situation where I got to use that one. I'm just like coworkers are yelling at each other, and I just be like this is not my locker, and it's totally trying to walk out the other way. This always ran through my mind anytime. I have to go somewhere It's a little bit uh, out of my, I guess, social status. And uh, you have to do the ballet parking. Can you put this in a good spot? Because all this shit happened the last time I parked here. I don't know how many times that quote goes through my head. I think I actually did use that once. I was doing an appearance <laughs> of the dolphins and the place I had to go. you had to, I hate that. You have to use the um, ballet. And um, so my truck? Yeah, it might, it might have been my truck. I had like a little Ford Ranger and it pulled up, and I threw that quote at the guy. I don't think he knew what I was talking about, but that's okay. And then my last one, I've used this too. You do that again, I'll shoot you myself. I've used. I have someone <laughs> screwed up on something. I'd be like, you do that again, I'll shoot you myself.
1: <laughs> I love it. Good stuff, man. So many good quotes. No, oh, I know they go by really fast. It's hard to keep track. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, here's my uh, last question for you. Okay. Did you notice the DeLorean parked outside of Victor Maitland's house when Axel first goes there to investigate? That's
0: hilarious. I forgot to write that down. Yes, when he's when yeah. when he backs out to pull out, it's yeah, sitting right there. I was like, oh my God, Marty McFlorney's in this movie. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Love that car. <laughs> I did catch that. So are we ready to move on to ratings? I think so. Let's do it. All right. So Jason. On a scale of one to five Beverly Palm Hotel robes, which we give yeah, right. Beverly Hills Cop. I love it. Beverly Palm robes. I want
1: one. If I could have something from this movie, that would be it. I like that. That would be cool. I want to
0: know how luxurious and soft those are. Yeah, hotel someone, hotel come on. Start your uh, Estee shop and start selling those robes. I'll buy one from you. Etsy, Etsy, right? <laughs>
1: That's great. I am giving Beverly Hills Cop 4.5. Beverly Palm Robes, man. Simply put, great performance by a 24-year-old Eddie Murphy. It's a great buddy cop movie. It's a great synth film score by Harold Faltemeyer. A great lyrical soundtrack. A shout-out to Daniel Petrie Jr. and Danilo Butt for a great screenplay and story, no matter whatever Siskel and Ebert say. It's just great fun for an hour and 45 minutes. You can watch it anytime and love it and laugh i love beverly hills cop this was a great rewatch bill Ben, what's your rating my friend it's
0: funny you mentioned the hour 45 and i thought the movie was longer i was surprised it was that short but yeah for me it's five robes man i love this movie it's one of my favorite 80s it's in my top 10 80s of all time and i think you know a lot of it has to do with the nostalgia factor but it is hysterical yeah maybe there's a little bit of holes in there that you don't want to poke at but uh I love this movie. If you have not seen this movie, you must see this movie. If you want to know what Eddie Murphy was all about from the eighties, go see this. So five big huge robes for me.
1: <laughs> I love it, and I can't argue with you, man. What a great movie! Yeah, I I think it totally holds up.
0: Yeah, I think most. I think about ninety percent of it still does. I mean, there's some stuff you'd have to to change. Yeah, D-
1: yeah, some of the language
0: you'd have to tweak, mm-hmm. or yeah. Some of the uh, connotations, maybe. Or, right. But I think you certainly yeah. keep most of it. All right. Uh, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at all80smoviespodcast. Catch us on TikTok at all 80 smoviespodcast tweet us at podcast all ladies in our next episode we will be discussing fatal attraction starring michael douglas and glenn close we hope you to join us again have a totally great week everyone this is the cleanest and nicest police
1: car i've ever been in my life this thing's nicer than my apartment thanks for staying up with us good night world I also wanted to read the tagline for the theatrical release in Australia of Beverly Hills Cop. And here it is. Get ready, folks. In Detroit, a cop learns to take the heat. In L.A., he learns to keep his cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing.